Hello, I'm Emily Austin, founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become harder and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with a stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, seems to be a mark of status. But when did that happen? Why has the goal become to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? My own experiences of the rhetoric around entrepreneurialism is that everyone's full of shit and no one actually tells the real story. This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed and honest insight into the reality of running a business from some of our favorite entrepreneurs. In this week's episode, I speak with Amy Liu, founder and CEO of a clean beauty brand called Tower 28 Beauty. Whilst growing up, Amy suffered with severe eczema and struggled to find products that worked for her. After several years working in the beauty industry, Amy set out to create products that worked for her and launched Tower 28 Beauty as a result of her experiences. We spoke candidly about entering a highly saturated marketplace and the issues surrounding regulations in the beauty industry. We discussed building a brand around inclusivity and whether her founder journey has been influenced by stereotypes and the glorification of entrepreneurship. Amy also spoke really openly with me about creating a product for everyone and the fear of becoming a fad. This is a really brilliant, interesting episode for uh, any entrepreneurs in any industry, but particularly if you are looking at launching a beauty brand, this is definitely one to have a listen to. To start, if you could tell me about your business, what is your business? Um, what's your role in that business? And then what the brand mission is? Yeah, so I'm the founder and CEO of Tower 28 Beauty, and we have a line of beauty products. So it's once we actually only have one skincare product currently, and the rest are color makeup products. And the idea is basically that everything is made to be designed for sensitive skin and made for all. So I've suffered from eczema from the time I was about, I don't know, 18 until now. So that's quite a long time for over 20 years. Um, and one of the things I was always looking for as somebody who's been a beauty executive since I don't know, I was like 21. So for a really long time, even longer, um, one of the things that's really always stuck with me is that it's been hard for me to try products. It's one of the most fun parts of working in the beauty industry is being able to try things, but I was always afraid to do it because frankly, my skin's really sensitive. And so I was always afraid of it breaking out. So I was always a person who was like trying a different diet, going to, you know, whether it was acupuncture or like Western medicine, Eastern medicine, I've tried steroids. That's probably the only thing that's really consistently helped me. Um, And really wanting to wear makeup, but not feeling like I could because I was afraid it was going to make my skin worse. So that was one of the things I really set out to do when I started Tower 28 is I really wanted products that were not only clean because basically as I, I have three kids, um, I was working at Josie Marin Cosmetics at the time um, at one point. And Josie Marin was really one of the first people that started talking about clean. And that was back when everyone said, you know, like, is it 96% natural, 97% natural? And that's what we thought clean meant back then. And I think when you 
have kids, you start thinking a lot about what you're putting on your skin and in your bloodstream because it's the first time you know, you're carrying life in your body. And I just became more conscious of all of that. And I thought, well, if I make the move to clean skincare and clean beauty, maybe that will help my skin, but actually it didn't. So what I found was when I tried a lot of the clean products, clean and, and, you know, everyone has a different definition of what clean means, but back then it was really like, how natural can we make it? And when I tried to make that switch, a lot of essential oils and product ingredients that are considered to be clean are actually quite sensitizing. And so I actually found it made my skin more irritated. And so now the definition of clean that at least I lean into, and I do it from the vantage point of really just wanting to make sure that for most people, if your skin barrier is working, then you can use a lot of things. If you're like me and if you have eczema, acne, anything where your skin barrier is a little more compromised, then your skin, things are going into your skin and into your bloodstream just because that's the nature of what's happening. And so I do think more about what is I'm putting on the skin. And so we really do look for that crosshair between um, non-toxic and non-irritating. And for that, I really use... Um, third-party guidelines. Like we look at the Credo. So we're sold at Credo and we're sold at Sephora and we use their guidelines in terms of a no-no list for what's non considered non-toxic. And really, I just want, it's like insurance to me. I'm just trying to make sure nothing's going to cause any harm. And then on the other side of it, we actually work with the National Eczema Association. So we're the only makeup company that 100% adheres to the National Eczema Association. So we make sure that we follow all of their guidelines in terms of what to not put into um, our products. And that was something that I was using as a person for a really long time. So I was using it for my soap. I was using it for my, you know, my detergent, all kinds of things. And then I, I just trusted them as a resource. Um, and now I trust them honestly, even more working with them because they are so strict. So part of that is you have to adhere to the no-no list. Then you have to third-party test to make sure it doesn't, on humans, to make sure there is no irritation. Um, and then actual um, dermatologists have to look at all of the data and all the information, the ingredients, the results from the test in order to get the seal of approval. That's what has to happen. So it's actually, I don't know if you know, but beauty is a very unregulated space. And so it's really up to the brands to self-regulate. And then some of the retailers um, try to help regulate as well. But those are the products we make. We launched um, just two and a half years ago. And as somebody who's worked in the industry for a long time, you know, it's interesting because I think people often say like that we've had a really fast, um, a fast ride and things have gone really quickly, which I'm so grateful for. But at the same time, I've also worked in the industry for I don't know, 18 years. And so it's like, it is not an overnight success to me in that sense. Although I am, I'm a longtime beauty exec. I'm a first time entrepreneur. Do you think the reason for so much misinformation in the beauty industry and so many products that claim, you know, make certain claims or think that certain percentages or talking about being natural, that kind of stuff. Do you think the reason for the misinformation is because the space is unregulated? So, so many different brands have been able to create these entry points and sort of say whatever they want to say. And actually, you know, it's taking time for big brands to catch up with 
with those kind of processes? For sure. I think it's a number of things, but for instance, in the UK, in the EU, it is more regulated. I'm based in the US. So, you know, I think that doesn't, that doesn't help in that sense. Um, but I do think, you know, the, the beauty industry has never been more competitive than it is today. There are so many small brands. It is so much easier to start a brand with social media, with contract manufacturing being what it is. Um, so it's easy to start a brand. I think it's quite difficult to get to economies of scale and to scale in general, the scale of business is quite difficult nowadays because there is so much competition. And I think to answer your question about why is it that people are able to make these claims, it's, I think it's very much like a, there's a bit of a herd mentality, right? So it's like, if this works for someone, people tend to be like, okay, then let's go do that. You know, and, and that's just, I think what happens, um, and it's, it's hard to, to stick to having, um, a point of view, to be honest with you, because it takes longer, right? So the way that we make products takes a lot longer than it does. I can't just go to a makeup show and pick something up off the shelf and say, great, let me put my name on it. Because we are so strict about all the things we are not putting into it. And then we also want it to perform. So because I've worked, you know, brands like Smashbox and Josie, like brands that were in makeup. Like I really, I have friends who are celebrity makeup artists. I really want the products to perform. And I think because I come into this with literally no influence, right? Like I barely even post myself on social media that I knew that the product had to speak for itself because no one was going to buy it because of, of me initially, you know what I mean? So that cross intersection of wanting the products to be like really, really safe. Um, really work well. And then also the other one that we really try to adhere to is trying to make them more accessibly priced. So we sell our products at Sephora, we sell our products at Credo, Colt, and Revolve. Um, But we try to be certainly in clean the entry level price point. So to give you an example of that, in um, the US, the average price point for a lip gloss is, I don't know, upwards of 20 something dollars. um, And ours is 15. So we're trying to, so it is hard. Was that a really key strategy for you when you were doing your market research and just from knowing, having worked in the industry, was the price an important thing for you to kind of be able to offer a point of difference on? Super important to me. And again, like just to bring you back to when we started, it was when I started like making products and everything, we are not, we're two and a half years old at this point. And at the time, um, and things have shifted a little bit, but there really weren't a lot of options. There were a lot of options in clean, but not necessarily for a more diverse background of people and certainly not socioeconomically diverse. So from a price point, I felt like it was an opportunity, but I also felt like it was an opportunity because I felt like people didn't, people of different backgrounds, so people of color, I think, didn't really see themselves in marketing and so I really felt like it was it was all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of your two and a half years ago when you launched the business, what was happening in the space? Because from our perspective, we see these crazy celebrity brands launching, whether it's Kylie Skin or these other big businesses that 
uh, you know, completely distort the reality for most people in terms of what it's like to launch a business. And as you say, like no influence, you know, people aren't, you haven't, you haven't sold it before you've launched it. You know, you've got to do the graft. What was happening in the industry at the time when you launched and how did that benefit or, or perhaps not benefit you? So I raised money before I started and that was three and a half years ago. And when I was raising money, that was right when Glossier was hitting its like huge stride. Like Glossier was everything. Everything was about that millennial pink and that kind of aesthetic. And I think it was such a breath of fresh air at the time because it was, it offered something different than the kind of beat face or like more just perfect makeup contour baked look, right? At the time, everything was about like a matte liquid lip and um, a contoured, really, really um, perfect foundation. And I think when Glossier came around, it was a breath of fresh air just because it was different. But I felt like there were things about Glossier that I understood why that worked for people. Um, But I felt like the opportunity was really to do that. The idea of less makeup, but also to do it from my vantage point of having basically sensitive skin. Like I really felt like so many people did not have perfect skin. And a lot of the images that you see in beauty, frankly, are people with perfect skin. And I personally find it really alienating. And so I wanted to put a different aesthetic out there, but I also wanted to put, um, ingredients and products in there that you could feel comfortable knowing were vetted by that. But I think your other question was about like, how do you stand out in a, in a time when influence, like, I mean, and at the time you're right, like Rihanna had gone to market with Fenty, right. And, And she had launched 50 shades. So I think there was some precedence of that. When we launched, we launched one clear lip gloss, one clear cheek product, um, and one skincare product. And it was really scary to be honest, because we launched, we put it in a little box with shred in it and just like a, a paperboard box. And at the time, again, like bringing you back, like that was when beauty blender was sending a life-size beauty blender to you, you know, like the amount of money people were spending on influencer at that time was insane. The like influencer media mailer thing in the US is like insane. In the UK, it's, you know, you get some nice box with a cut, like if it's a, you know, if it's a alcohol brand, like they give you a glass so you can drink it and like a straw. And it's kind of, it's fun, but it's not like you see, I see the pictures online of the US mailers, particularly, I mean, the Kardashians are a kind of lazy example, but when they do their like Good American or that, or when Beyonce does her Ivy Park collabs, like, you know, and I'm sure the same across the whole beauty space too. You're like, they're literally spending the same amount on the mailers as they do on the talent that they send it to. And and it works because it looks ridiculous, but you're like, that is a huge budget. I think that this is the way the world is now moving, but like, it's a huge waste because what do you do with something afterwards? If it's really sensational, if it doesn't have a use, then it's a whole lot of waste as well. So, you know, I, I think it is really, it was really intimidating though to launch in that environment where, um, where so much money was being spent and so many, like these other brands had so much more influence. And I think it's the idea that you have to come to market with so many products. 
Um, for instance, which is why it took us longer to launch complexion because for a while, everyone who launched complexion was launching 40 to 50 shades. If you have to launch 40 to 50 shades, that is a lot of inventory. So smaller brands really have a harder time doing something like that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a very competitive time. I think the market has changed and I think now, um, people, I personally, I think consumers are incredibly smart and savvy and they can sniff out when something is not authentic, which is why some celebrity brands have done really well, but others haven't. Cause I think the consumer understands. Yeah. And it's interesting now. I mean, I don't know what the U S coverage is, but certainly Glossier has sort of fallen out of favor in the UK press. Um, you know, you look at these businesses that are like the darling of the beauty industry and hailed as like these incredible iconic businesses which ultimately Glossier like still is and will forever be for what they've done but it's you can feel the tide turning and you can feel the like sentiment changing and it's kind of scary because you think gosh like even with the even with a business like that where there was so much power and it was so hot and and inevitably in business journeys if it if it goes that high like there's only one way that it's going to go but with businesses like that, you're sort of presented with this, like, this woman's changing the world, this is iconic, this is, and you sort of think, God, the fall is big, and people are ready to begin to start saying, oh, it's not that cool anymore. And you just think, God, that that pressure of remaining relevant, you know, you look, you look to other industries, like I know Sarah um, Blakely from Spanx is kind of a kind of icon, I um, worked with her for, for a couple of years on their UK PR. And you think, God, she's had that business 20 plus years, like the staying power of just like still being in favor. And I guess, we did you feel daunted by the idea of like being a fad where everyone loved you for six months? I still the- feel daunted. <laughs> I feel daunted all the time. I mean, frankly, um, fear is, again, like I've wanted to do this. I wanted to be an entrepreneur before it was cool. Like I want, my dad was an entrepreneur. I've wanted to do this for such a long time. I went to business school and I did a concentration in entrepreneurship. I have always like listened to how I built this. I've, I've done all those things, fear and being daunted and feeling scared has been a real through line from through my, it's a reason I didn't do this sooner. Right? Like I waited a long time to do this and I, you know, I think there have been times that I've looked at like the, I know a lot of younger entrepreneurs now, and I feel like at some, sometimes I feel very envious of the fact that they were able to know what they wanted to do and just do it so much earlier because now they have so much more, um, they have a lot of relevance in their own way. Right. But then at the same time, I'm actually really grateful that I did things the way that I did because I felt like I learned a lot along the way. And I don't think that I would have been able to handle this the same way if I hadn't had that experience, if you know what I mean. Um, And I'm grateful that I've been able to build up a network so that I have people that I can ask if I don't know things because there are so many things I don't know. Yeah, it's funny because I so I set up my business when I was 22. So I the business will be 10 this year. And um, congratulations. Well, thank you. But people always talk about like, oh, you know, starting a business song. And I always think oh my God, starting a business owner is the easiest shit because you don't have a mortgage, you don't have kids, you're not leaving a salary that's meaningful. I literally came out of uni and was like, yeah, I'll have a go at that. And then it just, you know, and then I thought, it, it, worst case, I'll be 25 and really employable because I had to go at something. And actually, 
when you've got something at stake and you've got a reputation and a network and you're you're suddenly asking people for favors or to kind of take a meeting in a different capacity you've got bills you've got kids you've got you know that is a very different leap of faith and you've got to really be like all in on that and and that would terrify me I mean it's you know it's not my experience and I'm I, I it like gives me anxiety thinking about it because but I guess one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is that there seems to be this I love that you said you were interested in entrepreneurialism before it was cool because there seems to be this chasm between the perception of what being an entrepreneur is and the reality and I think some of that is unfortunately fueled by celebrity culture you see documentaries about Kylie Jenner going into a huge office where there's signs everywhere and she's like running a startup and you know there's press mailers everywhere there's hundreds of people like product and you just like well that's obviously not what happens but also there's this culture of like lunches and parties and like meetings with press and meetings with buyers and it's all really cool and sexy and the reality is like no you're doing a deck at midnight because you didn't have any time and you're not seeing your friends and you know there is a huge sacrifice has has your entrepreneurial journey ever been impacted by the stereotypes of what has been presented to you or have you felt that you've been able to be quite um directive about like your own entrepreneurial journey I guess maybe this goes back to what you were saying earlier about doing this not as a 20 year old I think because I've had the benefit of time and experience in some ways that I have maybe a little more um I think I've been less swayed by some of the shiny bright things that maybe um I think if I was younger I might have bought into a little bit more And to clarify, what I mean is, um, I think there's certainly around raising money. I think there's a lot of glamour around, oh, I raised this much money or I um, raised it from this person. And I certainly can understand wanting the prestige or the pedigree of being able to say those things. But I feel grateful that I did not and have not bought into that. That doesn't mean that I won't at some point raise money. Um, I did raise money in the beginning, by the way, we didn't, I didn't have the money to do this on my own, but I raised it from friends and family. You mentioned earlier that you don't really use social media that much sort of personally, but have you found Instagram and other channels to be good ways of promoting your business and reaching and engaging with a community? Or have you found it hard to figure out sort of where to show up in terms of it's TikTok, then it's Clubhouse, then it's Snapchat, then something's happening with Facebook? And like, what's your relationship with social media been like from a business perspective? From a business perspective, it's been fantastic, right? So I think social media has really democratized the industry or all industries really, right? It's given the ability for small brands, for small, for individual people to basically create careers and brands, right? So, so real businesses and find community is probably the number one thing. It gives you the opportunity to tell your story, find other people who can engage with you. Um, it's been incredible. I, in terms of focus, and this is kind of my, um, my broadcast for, for my team this year is like, it is about focus. Right. And for us, I really think it's, we've built our, our community on Instagram, but I really think we need to do more in TikTok. So that's kind of the next TikTok is, is amazing. I think they're incredible as an organization. 
as well. Um, And so that's really what we're hoping to do. Personally, I find social media a double-edged sword, right? Like I don't, um, there's a lot of, again, speaking about like the sexiness of founders these days, like I'm probably never going to be the founder who's going to do a get ready with me and show you how to do my makeup. I'm just not, that's not my thing. That's not really the way I even want to be received. Um, I would rather be received as a business person, which is how I consider myself and a human and a mom and a friend and um, those types of things. Um, And I'm, I like makeup, but I'm not a makeup guru, right? Like that's not, um, if anything, you know, you can come talk to me about your sensitive skin because I've had real struggles in that sense. Um, but in terms of like posting and, um, engaging with people from a, I I think it has to be authentic to you or else people will sniff it out too. So to be honest with you, I'm trying to find my own, um, way of doing that I'm comfortable with because, you know, it's not, it's not natural to me. I like doing these kinds of things, to be honest with you, because I like people and these are, this is the type of content I engage with a lot. Like I like podcasts a lot as a person. Um, and if I could find a way to do it, um, myself through social, I would, I would take the time to do it. But I think right now, you know, to me, it's about like the community and the, and the product at the end of the day. Um, and not, not just not really me we talked earlier about fear being a component of your like day-to-day or month-to-month running a business and I um I guess I'm quite cynical about all these things and quite flippant and I I think that a a good dose of fear is a good way to you know buy you and a, a big part of my career has been you know, first thing in the morning, the, the carpet gets ripped from under your feet and you spend the rest of the day trying to figure out how to just like find solid ground. And that's that's the rest and repeat that you do. Have you, a, a lot of people I talk to say that they've had an idea and they don't know how to create a reality with it. That's partly because they don't know what to do, but also because there is a kind of prohibitive fear that stops people what was the moment for you that you said, okay, now, now is the time. So I, I spent so much time telling people from the time I graduated from business school, I think I told people, this is what I really want to do. And when, you know, and fast forward, I think it was 15 years when, um, 15 years when I, when I met with this friend of mine from business school and I was, um, looking for a new role. And I told him like, hey, this is what I want. I want a lot of equity, but I want, you know, to like, I want to be at a small thing, whatever. And he was like, I thought you always wanted to do your own thing. And I said to him, I'm like, I do, but I don't have money. Cause like you said, I have three kids and I have, you know, a mortgage and all those kinds of things grown up problems. Um, and I also really thought I needed a partner cause I've never, you know, I've never done things alone. I've always been in a part of a team and a really cross-functional team. So it was hard for me to imagine that I could do this by myself. And he said to me, he was like, well, if you have money, you don't need a partner because you can hire people. And I was like, okay, great. I don't have money. And so luckily for me, he was like, what if I was your first money in? And it was, I had never even considered raising money before. So I think the idea of that, the concept of that, I think, you know, there are some people that I talk to that like, it seems so normal to like, you know, 
they just write a number on the back of a napkin and they're like, I'm just going to go out there and get it. And they, the confidence and the bravado that comes with that, I've always really um, been envious of. I didn't have that. I didn't think it was available to me and I didn't think, and and I think sometimes when I tell people a story, people think like, oh, you must just have like a bunch of rich friends. That is not really what happened. I had one friend that I didn't know was rich, to be honest with you. Like he had sold his company and he was my lead investor. And then after that, it was a bunch of really small checks. Um, but I think the thing that I did that helped me is for a long time, I had told people this is something I wanted to do. And then I spent a long time kind of like honing my craft, if you will. And so when the opportunity came and it was a great, like kick in the butt, so it was like, when is this not how, who gets this opportunity? Who has somebody say this to them? And then I started telling people and so many people that I worked with, frankly, or were friends of mine said like, you know, I don't have a ton of money, but you've said you wanted to do this for so long. I want in. And that was really how it happened. It was a bunch of small checks. It was, it was one big check and a lot of small checks. And then we put money into, um, but then there was still fear because I was raising money from people. I went to, I mean, my best friends, one of my, my biggest investors, um, and it was really daunting to think about how the people who it's great to feel like people believe in you, but it's also daunting, right? Because you're like, okay, well, these are the people I go to dinner with. These are the people I vacation with. Um, and frankly, it wasn't all like, it, not like everybody wanted to put in money, right? So I talked, for instance, my dad, um, who was the one who really inspired me to be an entrepreneur, but, and he frankly could have done it, but he was like, show me the numbers, tell me how this works, et cetera. And he was like, I don't get it. I don't think it makes sense. I think it's too crowded. I don't think you're going to like, I just think it's hard. So no, I pass. And at the time it was incredibly crushing, right. To feel like, wait, my own dad won't like, not even like a nominal amount, by the way, like, just like, just pass. Um, and there were, there were moments like that. There are moments where fear, I think, continues to be difficult, right? So when we were doing our branding, I showed, um, you know, my, my brother's actually a pretty well-known architect and he, in theory, really understands design. And I showed him our, our logo and he was, but art is subjective. And he was like, I hate it. It's terrible. And I think there's these moments where you're like, oh shoot, am I doing the right thing? Um, and it's hard because you want to, you have to show it to people to get feedback, but then you also have to kind of filter the information that you're getting from people. So I guess to go back to your question about how you'll know when to do something, I don't know that you know, but I think that you have to try. And then I think you have to filter the feedback that you're getting and have some gumption around it so that you know what you want out of it um, and that you can find your audience. No, I think that's great advice because with social media and with, you know, everyone's got an opinion and as you say, when you start a business, you go and you talk to people that you like, whether that is to raise money or whether that's just to say, hey, look, I'm doing something or my mate has a store. Could I put some product in it for the weekend? You know, you're, you're sort of constantly curating feed, feedback. And when you meet with investors or institutional investors, you know, they all have an opinion. And, and most people will say no, obviously, because you end up with like two or three investors. And I think that it, it says two things to me. One is you have to be really fucking sure about what you're doing, because if you're not, you're going to end up with like, you know, a committee just kind of iterating your product. 
but also I guess it's interesting because it's certainly in the UK there's this really big idea around having mentors and having people who offer you advice and and certainly in my experience I had a series of mentors at the beginning that I outgrew after two years and I remember feeling so awkward going for dinner with them that I was paying for to ask them for advice and it got to the point where it was like you're not telling me anything I don't know now because I've kind of caught up with that section and then you almost have to phase that out and then find new ones but historically the idea was like you have a mentor and they guide you What's your experience been like of finding mentors, whether they're peers or kind of, you know, like your dad or people um, to help guide you? And, and, and I guess interesting to hear, like, do you always feel like you are objective on their advice? You don't take on board everything they say. I mean, I think even on my own team, right? I try to make sure I'm taking advice from everybody for different reasons, right? So it's like, you know, like I have one girl on my team who's obsessed with makeup. Like this is, you know, she knows everything that's going on. She loves it. So I listen to her more about, um, specifically about makeup, right? But I might not listen to her as much about something else. I think you have to filter that kind of thing. And I think you have to base it, like all of us are only able to have our perspectives based on our own experience. So for instance, like I have one advisor, my one advisor has scaled a really large business. And so, and she has been like a CEO. And so I talked to her, but she, her product, her business is more um, of like a tech company. It's not a consumer product company, right? So I don't really talk to her about like, I don't know, makeup. I talk to her more about like, what does it mean to be a CEO? What does it mean to be a leader? How do you, how do you inspire and coach those types of things? But then I might go to someone different for, um, you know, something else. But I think the trick is just learning all the time. I don't think it's a mentor from, I honestly consider everyone in my life, someone who can teach me in a different way, including like I have a program called um, Clean Beauty Summer School, which is a program that I run every summer. And it's essentially a mentorship um, education um, and access program for people of color in the beauty industry founders. And the thing that I really love about it is I learn a lot from them too, because they're telling me about their struggles and it reminds me about what it's like at that point, but also they have different struggles than I do. And so there's community around it. I learn a lot from other founders who are going through the same thing. Um, And I think it is even like what you said about outgrowing. I think, you know, I went to dinner a while ago with, um, again, I've been in the industry for a long time. So I have a lot of friends in beauty and I was at dinner with some of my friends from beauty and they were talking about the the founders of the companies that they were with and how crazy they are and everything. And I was like, oh man, I'm the crazy founder they're talking about. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, we're not in the same place anymore. Um, but you find there's camaraderie in a different way with them than there is with maybe my friends who are founders because it's a different lens that you're looking at your business from. So I don't know. I think the trick is just making sure that you continue to learn as opposed to like making sure any one person does everything for you and then making sure that you're kind of getting the, the, everyone can teach you something. It's just a matter of like what you're asking them for. And in addition to 
friends and those kind of resources how else do you keep learning you mentioned that you sort of consume podcasts and you're sort of interested in what people are up to have you found there to be um a rhythm that you've got into where you expose yourself to information so that you can keep learning a hundred percent I mean like I look to so many different people we have a really strong um, relationship with Sephora specifically from a retailer perspective. And so I, you know, I try to learn a lot from them from a more um, trend standpoint, like what's happening in the industry, those types of things, because they have such visibility into the landscape. Um, but one thing that's probably surprised me a little bit about this whole experience is how important my own, um, my mental health is and how my energy can really get can can go down to the rest of my team and so realizing how important it is for for me to show up the way that I intend to and so a lot of the learning for me is kind of figuring out myself and figuring out how I want to be as a manager I've I'd like to think that because I've managed people and a better manager and I think that is true but I think it's like being a parent. Like you have to parent every ch- child a little bit differently because they're all different people um, and at different stages. So we've hired, um, including myself, where as of next week we'll be 12, but I've hired five of those people within the last six months. And so it's a lot of it's a lot of people very quickly in some ways. And so this is a different organization than we were a year ago. Right. And we're also doing it in, we're still work from home right now. So it's in terms of learning, I think I'm, I'm always learning and I'm always looking for feedback to try to understand what's working and what's not working. And then I think I'm always trying to pivot. It's also my first time being, and this is my, my advisor's whole thing for me is she's like, you are, you need to stop being like a head of marketing and you need to be a CEO. So like learning how to, and I've never been a CEO, right? So it's, it's learning how to shift my, my perspective um, and, and about the future, not just being so in the weeds and being so, you know, so attached to like the spelling mistake then. (laughs) That's one of the hardest ones, like watching someone send an email and you're like, oh, I would have written it differently, but you have to like sit on the hands. Yeah. And you know, it's a really, it's a really important point because I think in the same way that we outgrow mentors and, um, and, and sometimes friendships just generally in life, but obviously that can come kind of at reflective points in our career too. We also, um, progress through our businesses so when you start and it's like two or three of you you can afford to you know you might not have a really robust HR function because you're fully available and you might finish early on a Friday and you might get Starbucks together but when you're 15 people or 20 people you cannot create those same structures for scale and equally there are people that you might have hired at the beginning that by year three are no longer the right types of people because the business has changed and the business will evolve much quicker than someone's ability to to ascend often because you can't keep promoting someone every six months as you grow because that wouldn't be sort of reflective of their skill. And I think that moving into a CEO role is really hard when you've grown so fast because you're 
so used to being in the detail and actually CEO roles are often defined by their ability to delegate but also your ability to have people that you can delegate to and so unless you've got a really robust C-suite team you're training and managing a bunch of mid-level or junior people who require constant contact so then when you get to like 4 p.m you're like okay now I can do my CEO stuff and it's a really hard transition to make and it's a really challenging sort of hiring challenge as well it's it's really hard and I think it's also um I know a lot of what you talk about on your podcast is how there is like a glamorization of being of being busy. And I think there's so much truth to that. I think there is um, like recently I've been, I, I literally just yesterday sat down and I did the exercise of like, okay, well, if I have one touch base with every person and that's an hour a week, and then I have to like a marketing meeting, a content meeting, a new product development meeting, like a bi-weekly exec meeting, external meeting with support, external, whatever. And I'm like, honestly, my huge part of my week every week is just already done like not, it's already, it's already captured. And so to, when am I supposed to think and like be thoughtful about the decisions we're making as opposed to just being in the momentum of, of life and just doing something because it's on my calendar and it popped up again. Right. And so I do think there's a part of it where it requires a lot more discipline, frankly, to like sit back like, is this really the highest and best use of my time? And by the way, everybody else's, like, should they be in so many meetings? And should we be, what is, what is the best way to do this? Like, should we find, maybe we should just have, like, maybe you just make that decision by yourself and you do the work and come to me and we figure it out. We don't have to do everything by consensus. I always think with me, with my own reflections on my own careers, that the skills that make me the best are also the skills that make me the worst. Like my my attention to detail is so unbearable for a team because they're like, back off. Like, you don't, you know, and, and from the time when I started my business, I would be CC'd into every email that left the business. And I thought that was like smart because then I knew what was going on. And actually I just had a huge inbox. Everyone felt like I didn't trust them and the whole thing was ridiculous. And they never expressed themselves colloquially or friend in a friendly way with anyone because they were like, kind of always being watched and obviously now I'd be like that's a disaster but at the time I thought I was being like you know sort of um smart about the way that I was running the company and I think equally you know the the tenacity and resilience that comes with running a business is also a difficult trait to manage by a team because obviously they don't care as much as you and why would they they're not going to make money when you sell it so it's kind of like you're constantly like downplaying the things that you have in quite extreme abundance that actually make the business move but you sort of have to temper that with to your point like what's relevant for the team and what are they kind of willing and able to hear in a way that's constructive for them um you have amazing stockists suppliers I'm interested if you have any advice for anyone who's listening who has a business and is like, I would, my dream is to be in Sephora or my dream is to be in um, Cults or one of the others. Given that you've done it and you have great relationships with them, what advice would you give about getting either conversations started or or actual listings in those stores? Yeah, I would, I think the number one thing is you have to explain to them what need gap you're filling for them and not make them do the work. And I think you need to also help them understand um, 
what your plan is and what your vision is and how you're going to bring that to life in their store and how, and what basically the idea is like when somebody, how are, how are you going to provide something that fills a need for their customer? Beauty is one of those things where I think like beauty and fashion is it, as much about the product as it is about the, um, the archetype of the person walking in. So it's like, how can you tell that story for them where you're like, like for us, right? I could very clearly say price point was you don't have anything like this that checks off these boxes, right? Like you may have this price point, but you only have it over here and you don't have it with these attributes additionally of like clean. You actually don't have anything that's related for sensitive skin and that is makeup. So like, how can you tell them how you're going to tell their story and give them the confidence? I think the other thing, um, and back to like the idea of fear is the thing that surprised me is I actually didn't think I was ready to go to Sephora when we did. So I we launched in April we, um, I think the first conversation we had with Sephora was maybe in July and we launched in September and I would not have even approached them, frankly, because I didn't think, I don't know how many followers I thought I needed to have or how many, um, sales I thought I needed, but a friend of mine really encouraged me to, to do it because I, and it's different a little bit for me because I, I knew the, one of the people there. So I knew I could get a meeting, but I, that doesn't by any mean mean they're going to bring you in store. But I think the thing, um, you, if you don't believe in what you're doing, you're not going to be able to sell it to anybody else. And so I think I was at the time, I believed in what I was doing and I believed in my products, but I thought I needed more credibility from like, the the world and the audience before I went there, I thought I needed like a stacked resume. And I think, I don't know, like when I look back at my life, frankly, I think that's kind of one of the things I wish I would have done differently is just bet on myself a little bit more. Um, I think I've really been one of those people who led a really linear lifestyle in the sense that I really wanted a good resume, right? Like I went to college I graduated and I went to consulting, then I went to business school, and then I had great jobs. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think I was um, I was so worried about what other people would think that I didn't I didn't just do what I believed in. You know what I mean? Um, and I think if I I think that this was an example of like I didn't know I was ready to go to Sephora, and I'm so glad I did because obviously it's a combination of like they always say, like success is a combination of, of hard work, but it was also luck, right? It happened to be that when I went to them, they had a 14 inch section that they hadn't filled yet. And they didn't know what they were going to put there. And it just happened to be that that's about how many products I had. So, you know, I also filled a need gap for them and I was able to tell that story, but I think, um, yeah. So my advice is bet on yourself, but also, um, really, your job is to tell the retailer what what you're fixing for them. No, it's really, really good advice. We hear a lot now about productivity being a marker for success. And the, the messages are really confusing. We have to work a four-hour working week, but we also have to be doing more than ever. We have to be in the office till midnight to show how much we care, but equally we have to protect our mental health. It's, it's quite confusing. You are a solo founder you're a mother you're a daughter you're a friend you're a businesswoman and I'm sure many other things 
productivity can be really challenging when there are so many things that punctuate our day that are all important. With that in mind, if you had an extra hour in the day, what would you use it for? I mean, ironically, I wouldn't use it for any of those things. I would use it for myself. (laughs) Um, I think that we, um, everyone's different, I suppose, but I think I am so accountable to other people where, like you said, I think the two roles that I probably lean into the most at this point in my life are mom and wife. I kind of put those in the same because my relationship with my husband is also incredibly important to me. So it's not just being a mom, but I would say my mom and wife role. And then the other one is manager, really. I think that's the other one that I really lean into. Um, And you can't, I, I remember a long time ago, a friend told me this, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. And I think that's true, but I also think you can't work on just one part and expect the other things that you can do them later, right? Like you can't just be like, okay, I'm going to be working on my founder life and my business. And then later on I'll catch up and do the kid thing. Right. I don't know if that's totally true either, but I don't think you can do, I probably right now, if I'm being honest with you, I'm probably not a great friend right now. I'm probably um, not an excellent, I don't know, daughter even, but I am, I think I'm a really good mom and wife. And I think I'm really trying on the mom founder front on the founder manager side. Um, the thing that I think I'm not doing a great job of right now, and I'm really trying to do a better job of is blocking out time for myself. Um, whether that means like getting my haircut, getting my, you know, like just going to exercise, spending some time by myself, um, and not just being always prioritizing being in service to, to others. Yeah, it's really interesting how we frame different things, because certainly earlier in my career, I found it so hard to redline time. And when I did, I turn my phone off for an hour and I turn it back on and it would literally be like disaster, disaster. Why is your phone not, you know, and you just think, oh, my God, it wasn't worth it. And as I got older, every time I've had time off, whether that's going away for a weekend or, um, you know, literally half an hour in the day to like just be silent or whatever, those are the moments where you add the value back into the business. And I think once you frame it as the business only runs as fast as you can. And so if you're slow, you've got a problem. So I think if you can, you know, if people can reframe it as to being like really productive time because you're the valuable asset, it's a little easier, but yeah, you're, they're never enough hours. You're always going to feel like you're, you know, letting something go. Starting to have more confidence around the fact that this is like a marathon and not a sprint, right? So I feel lucky, really, because it's really difficult, I think, for businesses to scale. So like to now, we're now at the point where I feel a little more comfortable being like, I can imagine what the next three years look like. I didn't have that you know, a year, two years ago, I didn't know for sure. And I felt like it could all just go away. And certainly maybe it still could, but there's a little more, um, in structure in place that makes me feel like that's not going to happen. And I think the more, the more I feel like that, the more I'm like, okay, maybe I should take a, go on a walk, you know, like do whatever it is that I, that I need to do. But I think we, again, I really do think that the not just me, but I think everybody in the business needs to have great mental health in order to be a top performer. 
Yeah, totally. You've already achieved so much in such a short space of time. What's next? What can we expect to see this year? I mean, honestly, it's really just about focus, right? So I think um, I'm trying to not get distracted by the shiny bright things, meaning, you know, we gratefully, we have a lot of opportunities. If we wanted to, we can open more distribution, whether it was international or domestic. Um, but I think the goal right now is, you know, we've built a team um, and now it's time to kind of figure out how to run together and go through this next chapter with um, like together and really achieve the goals and make the things that we are doing bigger. So whether it's Cult Beauty, which um, is our our retailer in the UK and EU, which is amazing, um, or Sephora, et cetera. And the products really just making sure that the products that we do have continue to grow as opposed to, I think there's a real um, problem in the industry where people really try to sell newness all the time. Cause newness is a, it's like that big spike in, in sales, right? Cause people, people love shiny bright things. Um, but to me, it's even more of a impressive thing. If you can just make products that last that people really love Um because I think slow beauty is honestly just as important instead of just trying to get people to buy more and more. No, I mean, it's, it's such a, a beautifully designed, brilliant brand. And I have absolutely no doubt that you'll continue to make waves and achieve everything that, that you set out to. And I really appreciate you taking the time today. There's so many things that you said that will resonate with people at all different stages of their journeys and, and, and no doubt really, um, take on board your advice. So thank you for sharing it with me. Just one more thing. Uh, Every year I give my team a book that I really have enjoyed reading and that I want them to read. So I will share it with you too. Um, I just gave them yesterday a book called Atomic Habits. Oh my God. I'm obsessed with James Clare. Yes. I'm so, tell me, carry on. Sorry. Carry on. I'm, I'm so impressed that you've already heard about it. I only, I mean, it was like, I had read another book and Honestly, the way I knew about it was just Amazon doing the whole, if you like this, you may also like, and turns out they were right. Um, and I just recently read it and I am sorry to tell you that I'm not fully, in, you know, I haven't done all the things. <laughs> I've not changed my lifestyle. I'm not, certainly I'm, I'm not perfect, but I thought the mentality around it was really important. Um, and I thought it was a really good read. So yeah, no, I. it's so great that you mentioned it because I think it is such a brilliant resource and I'll make sure I put it in the show notes so that people can um, can pick it up because it is such a brilliant read. And I read it I read it first and then I got the audio book so I can kind of dip in and out now because I find it a little bit more accessible, uh, which is so lazy of me. But, you know, it, I, I still feel like with Audible, if you're, if you know, it's, it's, it's a good way to consume literature um, and learning because otherwise, you know, you're not reading anything. I thought it just made it like digestible and doable to make change. Cause I think sometimes we think of things as being so drastic. Like, Oh, if I want to, I don't know if I could ever, you know, be a healthy person or whatever it is. And yeah, and I found myself reading it and you're almost like, Oh yeah, that makes like, I can get on board with that. It's not like, it's almost not like groundbreaking in the sense that it's, it's sort of stuff, you know, but it's knitted together in a way that makes you be like, that's so much more impactful um so yeah I'm really glad you mentioned it I think it's brilliant and I'm sure your team will love you know taking their own lessons I think it'll be so interesting to see like who picks up what from the book yeah I mean yeah it's 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 the thing that I it's our 
tradition. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Well, thank you so much. And um, I look forward to watching the brand grow in the next year. Oh, thank you.